everyone, welcome back to the left page. This time it's uh, it's only Frank here, uh, your historian on call, always online, you know, that sort of thing. I'm here today just sort of like, well, here's the thing, <laughs> due to the whole quarantine thing and, well, us sort of all figuring out our own things at home and all that, Bruno has gotten quite busy with helping his folks around the house and all that, so he's gotten quite busy. He has a larger family than mine, so he ends up doing quite a bit of work and etc. So even the reading that we had planned this week, uh, he it's a tough one, I'll get to it later, but he couldn't read it as quickly as he expected or wanted. But he's going through it, so it should be out relatively soon. In the meantime, and something that I've been sort of wanting to do, and plan to, mostly, it's sort of keep you company, really. Like, do short bit videos. Like, I don't plan this to take much more than 20, 20 20-something minutes. This first one. I want another one this week, and at least two more next week. Uh, for a couple of reasons, which I will get to soon, but I think I'm going to be calling these like the quarantine logs, <laughs> or the quarantine diaries. I also have some reading corners I want to do this week, which I have sort of already planned and prepared for, because stuff I finished reading or I read a little while ago, and I think it's got quite a lot of content to sort of bear out and think about a bit in that way. I, I think I like the idea of the reading corners. Uh, I enjoy writing a lot, and that's a good way to do it, (laughs) a good place. In any case, I'm here today to sort of talk about both a book, yeah, like, I think these quarantine logs, they're gonna be both me talking about things I've been reading, because due to the whole thing, I have some more free time to read, and I've been reading a lot, quite fast actually, which is helpful, and good, I, I feel nice about it. And so I'm going to be talking about that, talking a bit about maybe the situation here in Brazil, or just sort of, sort of feeling and dealing with it, and sort of relating it to, I guess, my own perspectives and other stuff. We'll see how that goes. Bruno might come up soon uh, before the episode or not. We'll, we're figuring it all out. But regardless, I wanted to sort of be here. First, I, I, I like the idea of the solo podcast. And the solo podcaster, uh, although it's not something I want to have it always, I think it's interesting to play with, really. Uh, Chase Tibbs has Faith and Capital, a lovely, lovely, and incredibly important podcast for anyone who's a Christian and is questioning these things about capitalism, about the left. So it's a really, really good show. And one of my... Uh, like my second ever podcast I listened to, which was Myths and Legends, which was, uh, I love it. It's really good, really well researched, and there's some intellectual honesty and openness there to present sources and all that. That I, I love it. I wholeheartedly recommend it. And it starts with sort of shorter episodes, 25, 30 minutes, has some 40, 45, a few rare 50 to an hour. But it's really good, really well produced. And I wanted to do something more like Faith and Capital, which just short a bit, but also play with that idea, even if it's not something that I want to 
carry on doing. I, I appreciate a lot more the sharing, the questioning, the debate, or the collective reflection, really. Me and Bruno or others, really. So today I'm going to be talking about a specific book and a bit about my research. What I'm going to do, I'm planning to work on regarding my my place in academia and what I want to work with from a historical point of view. I have already comment- commented how I want to... Well, the whole left page thing and other stuff has helped me realize how... Well, I want to be close to literature, even as a history major and a historian. I want to look at literature. I want to think about literature and its questions and consequences and all that. So that's where I'm sort of heading towards. And I've been talking to a teacher of mine, a very dear one, and someone I really admire and follow and want to learn more and work with. And we've been thinking about sort of like, to plan out at least a sort of research project for this year maybe and maybe like to sort of the end of the year or maybe the next one to think about a master's and so on and I was thinking about a specific book to sort of make it more bite-sized I don't know but it, it can be more than that even with a simple book uh, again inverted commas simple and uh, one of the things that came to mind was Dispossessed, which we read last year and had a fantastic two-part episode with Mel and Pearson from Coffee with Comrades. Mel is no longer with them. She is uh, sort of running the We Regret the Error podcast, which is from Protean Magazine. So go check it out as well, other than Pearson's Coffee with Comrades, which is fantastic. And check out our two-parter. It was really interesting, really fun. I need to listen to that again. If only to think about the stuff that I want to study and just the reflections on the book. But it was a book I really loved and felt touched by. But what really, sort of from a historical point of view, sort of jumps out to me is like, okay, this possesses a book from 1974 that talks about, okay, utopia, science fiction, the future, but it, it, it sort of openly and explicitly talks about anarchism in a very positive light. Even if it is critical, it is positive, ultimately. And it brings out, well, <laughs> it's still it's shocking to me that a book from 1974 could talk about anarchism like that and be really well received and really popular. So I I want to look at that sort of reception and how that was felt and thought of because okay it's literature it's not a pamphlet it's not propaganda but it still does that and I it, it's the middle of the cold war I would be shocked. <laughs> uh, I still am. And it's a fantastic book. There's there's a lot to talk about it and I think this is just one of many interesting aspects from a historical point of view really. Even like analogies that uh, Ursula K. Le Guin establishes uh, between uh, Uras and ours, and uh, sort of even the nations of Uras are really <laughs> good parallels. And it was really interesting and convenient that one of my professor's sort of students and uh, recent she just recently defended her PhD uh, wrote a thesis on science fiction in the U.S. And it was really interesting work. I read it fairly quickly for a 200-page thesis. Really well written, really, really good. In it, she talked about a group of uh, sci-fi fans, which later became writers and critics and publishers of their own pulps and stories. Pulps were the very cheap and easily printable magazines. 
uh, then again, the whole thing about Pulp Fiction and the reference to that. So her thesis talks about this particular group from New York from 1938 to 1945 called the Futurians. It's really innovative work and there's only, it's like the first very serious analysis of them and the group that they were. The group is fairly notable by, well, one of those that is included in that group was Isaac Asimov. Uh, so, you know, really really notable and really important group as it, as it stands in as a sort of formative period really because the these writers they started to experiment and create different short stories and ideas and concepts so it's really really interesting and it, it, it sort of points out to me this first moment of science fiction uh before the second world war during and uh, insights into the post-war period after the nuclear bombs and the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Because when we talk about the dispossessed, we're talking about 1974. It's after that. We already have uh, we have other figures like Philip K. Dick who really changed the field. We've already had Fahrenheit 451. We've had uh, 1984. So all these works have already been published and already part of it. And it's really interesting because before that time you had a lot more hope and a sort of belief in technology that it could save us and all that. Other positions were espoused outside of that means. Like, as I never shut up about Walter Benjamin because I think he's right. Simple as that. Because he already questioned that idea of science, that idea of progress long before that. Uh, Benjamin died in 1940, so he came up with those ideas and concepts fairly before that and outside of that whole context of sci-fi so i i think he would have judged that whole medium and the whole field quite harshly and quite astutely and skillfully i believe because after the the second world war and the atom bomb folks got a lot more pessimistic and the idea for utopia and technology pure and simple saving us sort of fell out of fashion and didn't seem that realistic anymore. There was sort of disillusionment that, well, I guess this won't do. And that that really changed the field. So to think about Ursula's work even after that and to look at the future in a positive light, although a very different one, I will <laughs> quote its ending again, we are the children of time. It's an incredibly hopeful message this idea of possibility that time is open to us to do our work to change to struggle so it's it's really really beautiful and to study these different moments of sci-fi and have these comparisons i think that'll that'll be really cool really good and quite insightful to understanding sci-fi i am a big fan of star trek so i've always loved sci-fi so to think about it in this way and as an academic and a historian is it's really good and really special to me as well. So I'm looking forward to that. I have a couple, several different things to read during the quarantine other than literature and other historic works. So that as, a, as an introduction, I the actual book I'm going to talk about uh, briefly is going to be Isaac Asimov's I, Robot, which is a collection of short stories published in 1950. Although many of the short stories predate that it's just when the collection came out 
it's also noteworthy that Asimov would have turned 100 this year, so it's also interesting and quite a convenient time to talk about that too. Uh, the actual researcher who published the aforementioned thesis, uh, Andrea Seifert, with an S, she also did an interview for a Brazilian academic radio, short 15 minutes, it's in Portuguese unfortunately, but for English listeners, but she talked about a bit about Asimov, a bit about this whole dimension of her work, and a bit about her thesis and her idea. And she mentions many of the problems with Asimov, mainly uh, the sexism uh, and racism as well, though uh, I think the sexism was much more present. As it was in sci-fi in that time, most writers were male. A large part of the public was made of women. However, in these various short stories published by the Futurians, and in these ones as well, although the ones from iRobot, which are nine, they have an interesting aspect to them. The large majority of other short stories of sci-fi at that time, the woman, if there was one, would have been either the damsel in distress or like, I don't know, love interest, uh sexy hot woman and that's about it needs to be rescued or will be companion etc uh, little to no development really they were not three-dimensional characters even or even two-dimensional if uh, being so bold although that is one of the main problems irobot presents an interesting aspect to it almost different not really but one of its main characters although not wholly present in all the stories which is complicated is a woman she is Susan Calvin the whole motif of the book is that Susan Calvin is retiring or has retired and a uh, reporter is going to do an interview on her and her work her life etc and the, the, the stories that the interviewer gets from her are the stories that compose like they are the short stories really and it's really interesting because she is a very strong personality. She's a much more elaborate character than what was common. But she has a very cold and distant and, I guess, a, a go well, not good, but a way of defining it would be sort of the clinical, like the frigid woman. Someone who is not emotional, who's not after any sort of emotional or relationship connection and commitment and it's just sort of focusing her work and not much more than that and so cold and distant and harsh although it, it, that is generally the stereotype here which is problematic because she's a fascinating and incredible character the probably one of if not the most astute character in the, in the book she is incredibly insightful and focused and I think that despite all that, her coldness and distance is, it seems to be a bit overbearing on the impression that it sort of comes out from her character. So despite her being so important, so interesting and all that, it seems that as the pers uh, the impression we're going to get is that she's very distant and not a good person to deal with. And okay, that may be true, but that that makes her more interesting character, a more interesting woman, really. Because she has a personality, you know? Uh, so, that. And 
even when there's sort of like very few breakthroughs be- in between her sort of like her coldness and her iciness, they seem very stereotypical. It's like explosions and a lack of control because the the it seems the whole thing of like <laughs> again this is the stereotype. I definitely don't stand for this. I'm anti-essentialist in all of these really aspects of defining a thing or a person. Um, that women are emotional and all that. So it, it seems to me that that comes through as well. But the short story is uh, that aside, although not really leaving it behind, but that being all that being said, to talk about the stories a bit, they... They portray this future where robots are bound by the free laws of robotics, uh, as Asimov popularized them, created them, really. Uh, the first one which is that a robot must not harm a human being and must not, by an action, cause a human being to come to harm. Two, that a robot must always obey a human being as long as it does not come into conflict with the first law. And three, that a robot must always seek self-preservation as long as it does not come into conflict with the second and first laws. So what Asimov does is he sort of bends and pushes the limits and the problems that may happen with these laws. Of Like, okay, where does the thing strain? Where does it break? So it, 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 it's sort of, okay, I'm, I'm defining these rules. How can I break them or push them to the very, to the point of rupture? It, it, and that's as really cool and interesting and well developed. The stories are really good and really quick to read. Like just to have, to give you all an idea, this is the second time I'm recording this. I did it yesterday in a slightly longer thing, uh, and then I decided to sort of split that up. But I recorded with the wrong mic, so I was like, nope, no, no, not gonna work. So I scrapped it, and here am I again. <laughs> And I basically read about 160 pages yesterday because I just, one, I, okay, I want to do this so I can start reading some other things. And it it was really interesting. I want to see where some of the stories went. It really is a, a good book. The stories are really interesting. But I will make a sort of final comment to sort of wrap up and give a final reflection before I, before I go. I don't want to stretch myself too much and my throat cannot stand me talking straight for long before sort of wanting to kill me. It generally does hurt. (laughs) But the point being, in one of the final stories, it it becomes clear that like there are these machines with a capital M that become sort of dominant and there's this sort of mega supercomputers that sort of coordinate the entirety of the Earth the earth has become split into four regions and each region as a machine that coordinates it all so things can run smoothly. And it seems like there's some problems there and whatnot, but as all the reflections and considerations come through, there is no problem with the machines. The machines are, if they're functioning properly, working towards the betterment of human beings in accordance with the first law. And if they are working in accordance to the first law, then regardless of our own human interests and thoughts and ideas and perspectives, the machines are working in our own self and best interest. Even with if we don't know what that is. And in that taking out the agency of human beings, that is portrayed sort of ambiguously, but not negatively. Because, well, the machines want our own 
what want our best interests and that's that should be okay because they are superior they are better than us and that's all and we will live as human beings and that's really about it we'll keep interpreting thinking it's fine but i do sort of draw a line i'm like i see where you're going for but i don't think so in this portrayal of robots and uh, artificial intelligence although never portrayed in these terms yet in science fiction and in the literature there is a way to solution where economic systems and the ideological wars i'm quoting from the book and adam smith and karl marx the difference between them seems to lose all point and well um, that does seem to drain quite a bit of what both things or both people and both systems would have stood for regardless of their execution and it really does put like in robots like salvation again technology will save us one of the things that andrea mentioned in the interview and which is absolutely true this early sci-fi and most most of sci-fi in that sense like when is a really fantastic exception technological changes are a lot easier to imagine and consider no matter how wild than social changes yersela sort of undoes the family structure in anas but asimov doesn't neither of the others really of the futurians it falls on the same frameworks it, it, it we almost fall into capitalist realism although not in that same terms and not the same time uh, mark fisher does that reflection much much later but that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism so it it really does come to light that like yeah we we can imagine a continuation of this but never a rupture never a distinct change and i sort of push back against that vision of a different world or a better world world that does not in one way or another exercise some sort of rupture some sort of breakpoint from the violence of capitalism as it stands and has it stood for so long the violence and the destruction so far is in, in there is no comparison with anything and nothing else in human history that much is fucking clear and yeah robots won't save us ai won't save us it is up to us to save ourselves together in community we are the children of time it is up to us to embrace that and f- fight and struggle for a better world it is up to us at the end of the day and if sci-fi can help us dream and help us think some more about what we want of that future what we want in our utopia what we want to build and what will be the problems of that or what are problems now that can that can be looked upon in a different light well then great but we need to recognize here and now that like we are the only ones who can save ourselves so thank you so much for listening thank you for being with us we i still have some other stuff i want to do with i have things to edit for the poetry club i'm sorry about that i will try to get on it soon the reading corners i have work to do for sure and i guess hopefully i, I can i can at least keep you some company in these t- trying and difficult times 
So please be careful. Please wash your hands. Stay safe out there. We love you all. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to us and to me. And you you mean a lot to us. And hopefully I'll be I'll be with you soon talking some more about interesting stuff and interesting literature. It's it's gonna be good. Definitely. Definitely. So thank you so much for listening. Until the next one. Remember, we are the children of time. We can do this.